Welcome to episode 855 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. John, you know what it is? It's 2023. Oh, it is too. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> I was going to say, it's second week of Mike Weeks. Yeah. But no, no, it's 2023. Mm. Okay, what's the biggest biggest thing that's going to happen in triathlon in 2023? It's going to be the PTO World Championships. The men are all going to boycott going to the Ironman oh, and it's going to be probably held in rote and you're going to have all the men turning up and that's going to be the world championships they consider and they're going to boycott going wow, to wherever, wherever they have the uh, Ironman World Championships. Imagine if that did happen. No, that's not going to happen, but imagine... I think it's a fair chance that a lot of men... If, if, if PTO had a race, I think there's a fair chance that uh, a lot of men won't go to the, whatever the world no, championships end up being. because the legacy still important. Mm. But that'd be interesting, but that's a, I know we haven't really started the show, but... It'd be interesting when we when we look at it because you know Molino always says the one thing guys who haven't won Kona don't understand is the legacy of Kona. Now, mm-hmm. you know, like I think it was um, Bennett. Or, or I remember Molina telling me about some other guy who was a really good athlete, had a really good career, but didn't necessarily go down that pathway. And it was like if you won Kona, you're mm. kind of in history, like Peter Jacobs. You know, mm. like you're, you're there forever, and it, it holds a prestige. It's kind of like in triathlon, Olympic gold medal and Kona. They stand above everything else, don't they? But is St. George from last year going to carry oh, that, that same that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, now that we're moving away from Kona, does does the guy who wins this year's world championship mm. will he still be held in the same light mm. moving forward? Is it is it that the Ironman championship is the is the gold nugget mm. or was it Kona the gold nugget? It'll take a long time to bed in, I think. Yeah, well, time mm. will tell. I have talk is proudly brought to you by our awesome patrons. Who are they, John? Anthony, the Squid Express Calamari. You're doing more. Roger the <laughs> Chop Canham and Marion Creaming the Moose Hearing. That's a great one. If you want to become a patron, go to www.iamtalk.me. Okay, so we've got our second in our three weeks of Mike interviews. Now, unfortunately, this man has passed away. Mm, Mike Plant. It was a great interview. I, I, now, when did we do this one? Okay. Uh, it this was. is definitely over 10 years ago. Mm. Yep, John, because John was, you know, you're doing a Mike Plant. Yeah. Plant. Episode nine, Legends so of Triathlon, uh, 2012. Yeah. Oh, it was literally 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, no, 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 we're in 2023. Yeah. So it was episode nine. So um, he died in 2019. Yeah. He was an author, photographer, journalist, freelance writer, and entrepreneur. Uh, he was involved in competitive sports journalism, uh, marketing, event production for more than 40 years. He was an early leader in the sport of triathlon, whereas a journalist, photographer, media consultant, and publisher, he helped introduce a fledgling sport to the general and mainstream journalists. Um, triathlon Magazine in 1986 called him the Dean of Triathlon Writers, a modest accolade considering the number of tri- number of triathlons there were at the time but it was if nothing else an indication indicative of his influence in the sport so yeah let's go, go, we've got on our show notes here this month's show he shares some great stories from the early years yeah this is an interview because I do actually remember some things from this interview which we can talk about afterwards so here is and and, and as I said before unfortunately Mike passed away in 2019 um so you're going to find out just one of the great men of the sport. So here he is right now. 
Righty-ho. So for, the, for everybody who listened last uh, month when we had uh, Scott Tinley on the show, um, he yep. talked about a variety of different things. And, and one of the people that he talked about was uh, Mike Plant. And this is yeah. a guy. And this is Mike we've got on the line here today. And uh, this was also endorsed by Scott Molina. He said he's going to be a great guy to have on. He was arguably, you know, the first person to sort of seriously cover the sport of triathlon in the states, and in terms of a um, being a reporter on it and. Scott Tinley also said that he's got the best collection of the early triathlon pictures around. He's the author of Iron Will and also the history of, um, which is a history of triathlon and also triathlon going the distance. Uh, and more recently, we've just seen, got Matt Bevan's browsing through a magazine here, three, three Go Triathlon, a new magazine out, and there's a whole bunch of Mike's pictures in there. So welcome along to the show, um, Mike Plant. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah. Mike, one of the big reasons I wanted, I was really keen to get you on is with, with this, this this podcast, we're trying to get a sense of really what it was like in, in the early days for triathlon, and, and then we're going to start sort of working our way forward. And, you know, we know that the first triathlon was held in, in 1974, and and it was it was sponsored, I see, by the San Diego Track Club. And, and one of your early roles um, sounded like it was working with the as the, the editor of the San Diego Running News. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us what it what that San Diego Track Club was, was all about, and how this sort of first triathlon sort of became into existence. Well, it's really kind of funny because uh, the track club obviously was pr primarily focused on, on running. Um, I didn't really get to San Diego until 1978, which, uh, which was years after you know, what people say was the first triathlon. And, and I don't really think there ever was a first triathlon per se. Um, really, the, the track club was looking, or some of the people in the track club were looking for ways to sort of just vary their training. Uh, and and they did so with with what we what became known as as triathlon, but it was kind of a haphazard thing. Um, it was all held on Fiesta Island, which was a um, uh, really kind of a, kind of a, a bleak looking um, little island where they actually uh, they actually uh, 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 it was kind of a dump. <laughs> uh, and 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 that was no, I'm serious. In the center of it, I mean, they they dumped uh, like uh, like sludge refuge, you know. But it was the it was the place out of the way that where they could hold running races. And so a lot of races were held on Mission Bay, which is where Fiesta Island is. And 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 so all of us that ran in San Diego ran literally thousands of miles around Fiesta Island in events and training and stuff. And and the truck club used Fiesta Island. And, and Mission Bay to swim and bike and run as just, like I said just just sort of uh, variations on the theme of of running. They were looking for places um, you know to do, and things to do that that broke up the training. And uh, since San Diego it is what it is, with it's full of water and 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 nice places to bike. Mission Bay Park is a great place to run. That became a natural venue for this thing. So it really was very informal. Uh, it really wasn't until 78, 79, 1980 where you started to see more formal events come in. Um, so I think that uh, uh, 1974 was probably the day, you know, the, the year that Jack Johnston and, and, uh, and those guys kind of first put these things on. But they weren't very official. They weren't the kind of thing that you even had official winners on, to tell you the truth. Hmm. So it was basically a bunch of guys going down and saying, right, fun. we're going to swim out to that that point there, swim across there, we're going to bike to X, Y, Z and back and then we're just going to run around here and we're going to do it as a really hard workout um, rather than it being a formal race per se. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the chance of, t- you know, 20 or 30 guys all doing the same course on the same day was probably very minimal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it was kind of a little bit of a free-for-all. And interestingly enough, as triathlon came on in the later years, um, uh, there were some folks in the track club that I dealt with um, that were not all that happy about the emphasis on triathlon, which is really funny. So the organization that actually gave birth to the sport was not really receptive when the sport became more of a sport and actually was beginning to be covered. And uh, I, I got some pushback on that later years which is kind of funny so, so where did it all start for you like um you said you came across to to san diego you know around that sort of 78 79 period what sort of drew you into the track club was it was it was it a, a job for you or were you sort of editing that news um as a voluntary role what sort of drew you into athletics and, and also triathlon yeah, well, I was an athlete all my life. My dad was a, a, a professional baseball player, minor league baseball player in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., he was a phys ed instructor for a long time, taught gymnastics. So I was a gymnast and a springboard diver primarily and a swimmer in high school. Uh, we ran before it was popular to run. My dad uh, was, I don't know if any of the audience remember, the Canadian Air Force 5BX plan for fitness. It's one of the, one of the best little pamphlets on, on workout. It sort of presaged a lot of the, 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 you know, the contemporary stuff that they're doing online right now and uh, and we got that they used to work out with that and it, it featured a run at the end and all these different calisthenics so I was a I was a really fit guy from the beginning with swim bike and, and run background I played baseball in high school so I was pretty much a, a pretty much of a, a of a jock uh, you know from from the beginning um, I um, I was never enamored of the of the weather back east uh, in Connecticut where I grew up. So I ended, uh, you know, where I grew up. So I ended up up in San Diego and ended back in San Diego. I was always a uh, kind of a budding writer, and I would took a very early interest in photography. I learned uh, basically self taught photographer in uh, in Vietnam, where I was stationed uh, for a year and a half um, uh, during the war there. And uh, one of the nice things about being in Vietnam is you could buy cheap. Uh, electronic equipment, uh, both in the PXs and then also I took a trip uh, on R and R to Japan, where I where I bought ridiculously you know great equipment for stupidly low prices, and so I was pretty well equipped and taught myself, learned how to use the darkroom and all that kind of stuff. So when I came to San Diego. Um, I set up a little business called Sports Shots, which nobody remembers, and, and, and I was that guy that went out and took photographs of the finishers of the half marathons and man- marathons, and this was pre-electronic, so I used to get the color uh, uh, um, uh, contact sheets and cut out all the little pictures and paste them onto the, onto the little things and put them in envelopes and send them to all the competitors, and, and, really? and that, was, that, was a, yeah, that was an amazing thing before, uh, before you could do it digitally, and um, uh, I early on, because I was a runner and fit, I early on made contact with the, con- with the track club and offered to do photography for them for free. And, uh, and, and that's really how it started. Um, it didn't take long before they realized that here's this guy that took pretty good photographs that's an idiot, to, to, you know, is willing to work for nothing. <laughs> and I, I was willing to write for nothing and edit the newspaper for nothing and put the whole darn thing together because I'd had some experience and, uh, in that. And, um, and so for, uh, you know, maybe less than a year or so, I, I did all of their, all of their newsletter. Uh, it wasn't very long after that that the president of the club, who became my business partner, said, you know, why the heck are we doing this for the track club? Um, let's, let's, let's start a publication on our own. So it was the San Diego Track Club News, which then morphed, and the San Diego Track Club News was very happy to have this happen because suddenly the magazine wasn't costing them anything, mm. and it became their newsletter plus other things. So that was where, that was where the San Diego Running News was born. 
1979-80, right in that period where we put out our first issue. And uh, the next year in 1981 was when we covered our first triathlon, our first real triathlon for the first time. And, you know, arguably, I don't want to claim anything that I'm not entitled to, but we were certainly one of the first, if not the first in the country, maybe in the world, to actually cover triathlon as a, as a serious sport, as a sport that was actually up and coming. So that's kind of fun to look back on. So was, was the scene in San Diego big enough, and you're, I mean, I know it's a big, big city, but that you could support a magazine, there was enough going on that you could come out with a magazine in, in your particular area? Was it Was on a monthly basis? <laughs> it was it was pretty wild. Yes, it was on a monthly basis. Of course, the running community was huge, and and I wasn't specifically covering triathlon. I was covering running and triathlon, yep. uh, whatever passed for multi-sport in those days, and we, we covered some wild things. Um, and it was a newsprint publication. It got up to 54 pages long, which was in two sections, which is the longest we ever did. Um, and um, uh, in those days, I, I wrote the whole paper. I mean, I would write up to 20,000 words a month. I did all the photography. I did all the illustration. I sold the ads. I put mm. together the ads, designed the ads, and worked with the, of course, again, pre-digital. It worked with uh, the, the, you know, the, the firm that actually put the paper together for me. And then got it printed and delivered all myself. I had a van, and I used to put 10,000 copies in the van, literally floor to ceiling, passenger seat all the way to the back where you couldn't see anything out. And the van would be like, you know, like, bumping off the wheel wells. Mm-hmm. It would be so heavy. And I drove all over San Diego and delivered this thing myself wow. uh, every month and uh, lost a couple of girlfriends along the way. Um, <laughs> you know, who would want to put up with that crap? Because there were a couple of all-nighters in there. But really, it was the only way to get it done. So, you know, do you ask me if it supported um, a publication that supported a really stupid lifestyle for mm-hmm. a little while? Until it actually did begin to support itself. And we eventually hired a staff and 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 got three editions. Uh, we eventually published three editions: an Arizona edition, an out Los Angeles edition, and a San Diego edition. And uh, you know, we we did okay. Um, I was probably pretty stupid as a businessman back in those days, and I wanted to put out a wonderful, editorially correct, ethically correct, lots of editorial. And we should have had a um, a much different advertising to editorial ratio. So I don't think I was tremendously realistic. But like so many things in 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 running and multi-sport and athletics, you know, it was more of a labor of love than anything and where did that lead to that that um that news did it did it carry on did it get bought out or where did it lead to well that's a, that's an interesting little story uh, my <laughs> partner and i um got a little bit sideways. um he um we broke up um i had by that time hired bob babbitt mm-hmm. um who some of your um, listeners yeah, will yeah. know and yeah. and lois schwartz who who did some marvelous photography i actually taught lois photography from scratch she didn't know anything about it she did some wonderful work including the a lot of the stuff that you see in iron war and stuff she did some some marvelous photography and of course um uh, and bob and lois stayed with my partner he sold the publication they had some terrible uh, you know was some difficult dealings there for a little bit and that publication became competitor magazine mm-hmm. Um, which um, now in the United States has become quite a big deal, and the competitor mm. group owns just about everything mm. uh, you know in the u s so there 's a kind of a direct evolutionary line there from you know my uh, driving all over San Diego in my van to uh, <laughs> you know to now this you know this this uh, 
uh, this huge investment that, that people have made. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. So it did come to something. So, so you know, you kind of went to San Diego around um, 78 and, you know, it was really a running club that would put on these kind of small multi-point events. You kind of said it around 98, that was when your, your magazine first published that kind of triathlete, triathlete article. What were you seeing happening in triathlete over that kind of very early period where it went from just a couple guys kind of meeting up and doing these random courses to actually starting to become a bit more official? Well, in the you know in the early days, it was pretty ad hoc. Um, um, I, I remember uh, well, in fact, I was just looking at some photographs, some old photographs of, a, of an event called the Rusty Pelican in Newport Beach, California, where literally the transition area was this mob of people, and people were coming in on their bikes. And I have pictures of like mom handing the baby to dad <laughs> so she could get on the bike <laughs> and and run, and and that was um, fairly uh, typical of the way things were. Transitions there, transition transition areas where people. Mothers, fathers, sons, wives, husbands, holding bikes, holding running shoes, um, towels, you know, all sorts of stuff. In fact, I remember in 1980 uh, uh, covering a, an event called the Chuck's Triathlon on Fiesta Island of all places in San Diego. And Ned Overend, who later became a world champion mm. in mountain bike, uh, running through the transition area and people realizing that he was doing the whole triathlon himself rather than what everybody else was doing was a relay. And there were only about four guys in the race that were doing it um, themselves and hearing this gas go up like, oh, my God. And uh, that was less than an Olympic distance race at those times. So, it, it, you know, like it was, it was a, it was a really wild um, West kind of, uh, you know, U.S. type of um, uh, chaotic environment. And it really wasn't until the advent of the U.S. Triathlon Series in 1982, uh, which I was fortunate enough to be part of, um, that that put you know wave starts there and bike racks and some sense of organization uh, to the sport. And that that really was the um, was the centerpiece of what I consider to be the growth of the modern triathlon from that 1982 period on through the U.S. Triathlon Series. So, do you recall what was the first USA? triathlon race and and how that sort of went and and whether it did get much coverage well it it it's it it was interesting because um uh, a very very good friend of mine has since become my friend um uh, one of my best friends uh, and my wife and, and a fellow by the name of carl thomas were actually very instrumental early on uh jim curl who was in the triathlon hall of fame here in the u.s the usat hall of fame was um was pitching this. My wife tells, tells, still tells a story. She walked in the office and here's this crazy guy with his arms going everywhere saying, you know, this is going to happen here and this is going to happen here. And, and uh, she was an account executive at that time for Speedo International. Her boss, was the vice president of Speedo, uh, was Carl Thomas. And Carl somehow saw that this could do something and decided that Speedo was going to sponsor this triathlon series that Jim Curl had invented. Um, my wife at the time was working for Armin Kintayan, who is now a, a, uh, an NBC uh, sports commentator and wrote for Sports Illustrated for a while. So he went on to do big things. And that was in 1981. And, and Jim Curl came to San Diego a little bit later when the plans formed up and asked me if I would do the program for the series. I refused him because I didn't see there was any money in it. <laughs> but uh, I remember very well, and he remembers very well, a very tough run we took in 1981 sort of trying to test each other out to see who was going to go fastest and last longest. But, um, but that, was, um, uh, that was sort of the, um, the beginning of that. Um, uh, they used some of my ph photographs for the first ad. Uh, the first ads, uh, Scott Tinley and his brother um, uh, Jeff were, were part of that program. I know Scott was a big, was a big deal there. And that's, um, that was kind of the, the genesis of all of that. 
um, Speedo sponsorship. So when it started, Carl was a pretty good, probably a pretty good salesman. Speedo was a sponsor, and very early on, Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch came on as a sponsor in 1982. They were actually the first title sponsor of the race, mm. um, and they saw this um, as a way to introduce a light beer as a beer for uh, more healthy people. It didn't make any sense at all if you thought about it, but um, obviously Traplin was very happy to get the sponsorship, and Bud Light said, well, hell, it's a marketing platform. Let's use it, and uh, that went on for a decade. You know? How did you get the – you know, like – Bud Light, you know, you know, that's a massive brand in America, and, and triathlon is this hock little sport which hasn't really got any organisation. How'd you how'd you get how'd that happen? It's a really good um, it's a really good question. I think from the beginning, people kept thinking that there was big money in triathlon. I have no idea why, <laughs> and I think to this day we wonder. I remember when IMG and Barry Frank and NBC Television was getting into Nice, and they they kept. There was a there was a, a long series, a long a line of people that, that that saw gold in triathlon and 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 jumped in trying to make a lot of money. Um, very few of them were ever very successful. I think with Bud Light, it was relatively modest, and they thought they could use this this emerging sport as simply um, part of what represented a, 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 a and I'll put this in big quotes a healthy brand. Hmm. Um, and that was the goal. And uh, obviously, Bud Light was the first sponsor, first title sponsor of the Ironman in Kona. Um, so they pretty much owned the sport of triathlon in the U.S. for, like I say, almost a decade. And pretty it, strange. Did it did it go well? Like that first season, was it was it everything you'd hoped for and more, or, or how did the races sort of pan out? Was it was it chaos that progressively got less chaotic, or what was it like? A mixture. A, a mixture, and it really depended on the race. There were some wonderful stories. I mean, because this was all being being sort of cobbled up at, on the fly. Uh, my wife handled all the PR, and it was probably more instrumental than anybody in the world at at publicizing this to the general media. She worked very hard. She's very good in public relations and marketing, so they usually got pretty good press coverage. As a matter of fact, when she and I worked together at the races, my job would be to uh, make sure that the press was el- well educated in the sport. And we went out on the bike course in pickup trucks, jam packed with photographers. She worked very hard to get all the local media, sometimes the national media, out there, and we would have. 10, 12 photographers packed in a, so tight they couldn't move in the back of a pickup truck. And I always had a good driver, and I'd lean over the cab. I'd be standing up and back leaning over, telling the guy where to go. And we would get them close-up pictures of Melina and Tinley and Dave Scott and all these guys and all the best women, Colleen Cannon and, and the Puntos twins and all those people. And we worked very hard to educate the press. And we, we had some absolutely Mr. Told wild rides out there in these press trucks. I mean, it was just insane. There's no way you could do it now. Uh, there's absolutely no way they would allow something like this on, on the course. It was, it was at times just absolutely dangerous. But, but um, that's what led us to, um, um, to, uh, to, to cover the sport so well and, and really to establish around the country a whole cadre of journalists who are actually covering triathlon as a serious sport in some of the major newspapers in Chicago and Fort Lauderdale, Florida and all these places. Um, the races themselves were remarkably well organized um, from the standpoint of what, um, you know, what, was, what, was, uh, uh, what was the state of the art at the time. Uh, but there were some, there were, as you might expect, some 
absolutely ridiculous disasters because when you went into these cities, you were dealing with race directors in the local venue who could be trained to some respect but didn't know what they were expecting at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember there was one great story, one of the very best stories at all. Jim Curl, was the, he was standing on the lifeguard tower and they were in Atlanta on a very foggy morning in Atlanta and a lake. And, uh, and uh, you could barely see the buoys at all. Just there were, you only see one or two buoys. And as, the, as, the, as it got closer to the race and people were on the beach waiting to go, the fog lifted a little bit and then the fog lifted a little bit and then the fog lifted a little bit more and there were no more buoys. And Jim Curl turned to the race director and, and had this terrible realization. And he turned to the race director and he said, how long is a meter? And she looked at him and she says, about a foot, isn't it? The swim was about a third as long as it was supposed to be. Oh, no. As a result of that, when Tinley and Molina got out of the water and got on their bikes, the park gates weren't open yet, et cetera, et cetera. So there were all these wonderful stories about <laughs> you know, learning how to put on triathlon on the fly. But by and large, uh, we had some, they had some magnificent races. And uh, really, the Tinley-Molina matchup, Dave Scott occasionally, and of course, Mark Allen first became uh, you know, a, a, a force at, in, in the USTS, and then later on, Mike Pig, and then all the women, the Puntos Twins, and Kirsten Hansen, and Aaron Baker, and all people. The U.S. Triathlon Series in the U.S. was really the center of the sport for quite a long time. So, so Ironman comes into the piece of an early 80s as well. You know, you're obviously covering um, the, you know, the, the triathlon in general. When, when Ironman first came on, did you guys think, well, what is this? Like, how did that come into the picture? Well, you know, I mean, I was one of those nuts that read the article in Sports Illustrated about the 1979 race with Tom Warren uh, that Barry McDermott wrote. And, and I, w- I remember very well my dad showing it to me in Sports Illustrated. And while everybody else was appalled, I was one of those few people that went, wow, this is amazing. I, mm. I just thought it was, it was terrific. In 1979, I met Tom Warren and actually covered the first multi-sport race I ever did, his, his Tugs Tavern Run, Swim, Run. Um, the Ironman was still thought in 19... 19- um, 80 and 81 to be something that um, really wasn't taken on very lightly. I mean, there were still there were still edges of people that thought it was risky. I remember writing an article about a guy who was going over there that year, and he did a half Ironman just to test himself out. And and uh, they were talking about him wandering around, senseless, dehydrated, mumbling to himself, wondering how in the world he was ever going to finish the Ironman. So, really, during that 1980. 81 period, um, uh, especially 81, the first year on the Big Island, where they were still still stopping people midstream and weighing them during the bike course to see if they had lost 10% of their body weight. And if they had, they would, throw, you know, they, would, they would disqualify them from the event, the year that John Howard won the race. So during those early years, um, Ironman was still seen as something that um, was irresistible to a handful five, six, seven hundred people, but uh, still was looked on as something absolutely insane. And it really wasn't until that that 82 race with Julie Moss, uh, where she fell and Kathleen McCartney won, that, that people started to see this, and television started to see this as a bona fide um, athletic event, something that, that was extremely dramatic. What about, you know, you, we, you, you, you mentioned there the Julie Moss um, story, and I think everybody um, who is knows Iron Man is probably familiar with that story but were there other, any other turning points you know you've, you've said USA T series when that first started that was a turning point Julie Moss turning point are there any other sort of key turning points that you, in the early years maybe that related to the media as well where things really started to ramp up quickly um, well I think um, uh, interestingly enough uh, the, the, within the with, within the U.S. triathlon series in the in the domestic 
U.S. here on the mainland. Um, the stories that really seemed to get the most attention and that were turning points for the sport in terms of its popularity were more the human interest stories than the top athletes, than the top performances, because the sport, the, the media didn't really understand uh, the, the sport and there wasn't enough money in it really to make them stand up and take notice. Uh, it was really a small group of journalists that actually covered the race. And it was still, it was still uh, covered as kind of a, you know, an anomaly. But I remember that we had, um, we had a guy in the U.S., Gary Clark, who was the first heart transplant patient, for instance, to ever do a triathlon. He got tremendous coverage. And I think that was um, probably a turning point here in the U.S. in terms of raising awareness for the sport. Um, the, um, the Dave Scott and Scott Tinley battles um, at Ironman you know, and the USTS with Molina and Tinley were, were always big deal. I think, um, um, I think Scott's, Dave Scott's dominance during that period was probably something um, that, was of, that was of great note. Um, um, and, then, and then, you know, Iron War, and then the year before that, I think it was the year before that, with Paula when she finished 11th overall and, and established herself probably as one of the greatest in, you know, female endurance athletes ever in the history of the world. And I still don't think she's gotten full credit for that. Uh, you know, those are the things that stand out, stand out in my mind. Um, uh, well, well, well. I think... Go ahead. Oh, just with the human interest thing, you know, because I know John gets frustrated with the amount, even to this day, you know, how the pros, especially in Ironman in particular, you know, the, the, the way it's packaged is very much human interest story. And, uh, yeah. and you know, you watch the Kona coverage and, you know, it's kind of like here's some stories about some people and there's a race happening as well for some pros. And, you know, obviously being in the media, the, certain areas sell a product and obviously human interest story in triathlon in general is a good one to sell. What are your thoughts on that, you know, as, as an overall perspective, you know, being a media guy who obviously had a pretty big influence on the sport and how it was presented, and also you were obviously trying to motivate, have motivation to make the sport bigger. What was the kind of, did, was there a conflict as a media guy to go, do we want to have, what, what's that balance that's right? Well, I don't know that there was a conflict in me because I, I was always a pragmatist about it. Um, if you wanted the sport to grow, you needed to attract an audience, and you couldn't just attract an audience of people that, that, uh, of, 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 uh, of fanatics, of people that love the sport. Um, and, and I've done some speaking on this to other groups as well. You, you, you're always going to get those people. The people that love the sport, they're there. There's nothing you can do to drive them away. But there are only so many of them. And I think that um, in any business, and, and certainly triathlon is, is a good one, the, 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 the parts about the sport that uh, appeal to the person that really can't understand a guy um, uh, Somebody like Paula Newby Fraser or somebody who races, uh, you know, who runs a marathon at the end of the day in Kona at 545 pace, that's pretty hard to understand for most people. Um, but what they do understand is the, is, the, is the housewife that goes out and stumbles through a marathon. Uh, it's sad to say, as a purist, you'd say, well, gee, that's ridiculous. That's not really the sport. But in fact, for most people, it is. And that's how the sport gets publicized. Uh, going back to Gary Clark, this heart transplant patient, we might call the Boston Globe and talk about Scott Tinley or, or Dave Scott in the old days till we were blue in the face and not get anything. We tell, we tell somebody this is a heart transplant patient and talk about his story. Um, uh, he was the front page of the Boston Globe. He was on radio, television. Every city we went in, he was a front page story. We could never place a triathlon like that. So if you were to say that's not a valid story because it's not a pure triathlon story, then really I think you did the sport. 
a disservice. Mm. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was when we brought the U.S. Triathlon Series back for Quintana Roo in, in 1998, I think it was the first year we came back, and Bally Total Fitness was our title sponsor, and uh, I worked with the senior vice president John uh, Wildman on the on the event, and and I was really proud to have him as a title sponsor, and we were at Oceanside for the national championship one year, and and uh, I I looked up at the crowd in the morning and I thought this is great look at all these people and John looked up at the crowd and he said we got to figure out how to get more people out to these races <laughs> that was the sponsor <laughs> and so the next year um, I committed you know uh, a, a terrible crime uh, as far as what some some of the people uh, uh, you know involved in the sport were I actually went and signed the Baywatch television series to a sponsorship in the series oh, wow. and we got a couple of bikini models and a lifeguard and we gave away authentic Baywatch lifeguard jackets and um but we were able to use that in media, and we were able to attract a crowd of people who wanted to see Baywatch girls in, in bikinis and, and get a chance to win a Baywatch lifeguard jacket. They couldn't care less about triathlon, but, you know, it exposed them to the sport. It let them see what it was all about, and, and I know that a certain percentage of them said, this is pretty neat. <laughs> you know, so I think that um, – I think the purism is dangerous when you're trying to, when you're trying to grow something. You've know? mm-hmm. you got to be careful. What about you know these days when you go to go to many of the events, um, Ironman events, um, part of the US series or, or anywhere in the world, you know it is a really it's a festival day. You have um, good events, you have lots going on. The music's pumping. You've got great MCs rolling, um, and it is you know it's it's a big time. Was it like that? And were they create in the eighties? Were they creating that um, sort of festival atmosphere and, and and a real sort of party at the race? I think we were. I think we were trying. Um, I think there were. Um, it was difficult at seven o'clock in the morning to get someone. It was hard <laughs> enough to get the media out there, for heaven's sakes. Let alone get spectators out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of wives and husbands were rolling over in bed, going, "Jesus, you got to be crazy. Go do your race. I'm staying here." <laughs> um, so I think it was a challenge. I think it still is a challenge. Um, it's a lot better now than it was. But I'll tell you, back in uh, when I started first first announcing at the Ironman in Hawaii. Uh, I think I started in 1987, as I recall. And I remember going over there for the first time in 1982. I met a very good friend at the finish line, and we were standing there at midnight at the last. And they had a couple of our radio announcers at the time who were absolutely terrible. And it was raining, and there wasn't a soul there at the finish line. There wasn't a soul. There were like just the people finishing at midnight. Yeah. One of the most dramatic parts of the race. And when I, when I took over as announcer... Uh, one of the things that, I, that I'm proudest of in the sport, that I, I, that I hold the most dear of all the things I did, is I was determined that we were going to get a big crowd at the finish line. And in fact, I mean, I talked to the pros who, who are our good friends. We went all over the country competing with them. We, had, we gradually, over a period of years, uh, built that finish line with great music. I remember we used Aretha Franklin was our theme song for the first couple of years and got people doing the wave and we built that crowd at the finish line and created that party. Um, and um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a very difficult thing. The Ironman, the island is full of nothing but triathletes. I think elsewhere, it's harder to do. Uh, mm. In the early days, there were, it was pretty bleak at times. It was pretty bleak. Even at the Ironman, it was bleak. So um, where, where does Mike Riley sort of fit into this? Because he's considered you know, the voice of Ironman. He calls everybody in. Were, were you in before he started, or, or was he there at a similar time to yourself? 
Well, <laughs> this is actually funny. Uh, I announced over there for four years. The first two years, um, I invited a guy by the name of Mike Adamley, who did later did the Ironman. He was a television announcer and a former professional football player in the U.S., and he did some television commentary, so he came over and helped me. And then the next two years, I invited Mike Riley over to help out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Mike was... Um, Mike was my sidekick for the first two years, and then the Iron Man series was purchased, um, and uh, I went away, and Mike stayed. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what to think about that, you know. But he was—he does a great job. Mike's a great guy. I've known him for a long time, uh, since way, way back in the in the late seventies and, and early eighties here in San Diego. So, he's a good guy, and he does a fantastic job. I don't—I don't know that my my voice would have held up that long. So, <laughs> John. Have you ever wanted to do a Tour de France? I have always wanted to. John, do have I got too. something for you? <laughs> <laughs> I so, don't. I don't want to do it in, induced with any uh, artificial. Stay away from the roids, John. Yeah. Stay away from the EPO. And I also want to get the full French experience. You know. Oh really? Yeah. Well, have I got something for you? Global Adventure Tours, guys. They've been doing a full Tour de France. Instead of us telling about it, we have actually got Axel, uh, who's who's a local triathlete here and a part of the business. He's going to give you guys a bit of a talk about it. Seriously, this is something you really want to consider. Okay, um, new sponsor of the show, Global Adventure Guide. Now we have got... This is amazing. Oh, this is so cool. That we've got... Uh, obviously, it's Tour de France is, uh, is probably just wrapped up by the time this, this comes out. And having been over to France several times and done some of the rides, it is a very cool feeling going, you know, I've just ridden the... Yeah, Col de Tourmalet, or I've just done Alpe d'Huez, or I've just done um, one of the you know the famous climbs through the Alps over um, many many of the climbs. And if you want to get a piece of this action, there's a cool cool camp coming up, and we've got uh, Axel Riser um, to tell us a little bit about that. So welcome along, Axel. Hi guys. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So yeah, t- this is uh, this t- tour is a little bit crazy, but it's a cool idea. So, so tell us what this, this tour is. It's basically a Tour de France tour where riders are actually going to ride... You ride the, the Tour de France. Ride the route, the, the, yeah. the, the, the 2000 Tour de France. So t- exactly. give, us, give us a bit of a rundown of the route and how the sort of the day-by-day routine, because they're not doing, you know, 180, 190 Ks. Just give us a bit of a rundown on how the camp, um, where it goes and, and how it works. Okay, yeah, well, we, we came up with this idea. Um, tour de France, obviously... The 2000 Tour de France is, is one that, um, from a tourist point of view, that we find particularly interesting because it touches very famous areas um, of France. It sort of uh, covers the Dordogne with the big forests and then into Brittany, down into the Pyrenees, across uh, Provence, through the Alps, touches Switzerland, Germany, and then comes back to Paris. So from a from a tourist point of view, that that's that's very exciting route, and then obviously the I think the average for that tour Armstrong and his guys they rode it at 39k. That's <laughs> um, impossible to do. So we just um, came up with this idea. We we doubled the time, uh, put in a few more rest days, but still ride the entire tour route. Yeah. So you will be you will at the end of the the camp or the tour you will have covered the the entire Tour de France, wow. which I think is. Is, is, is quite um, something special that has never been done before. So it's, it's a unique idea. Yeah. And um, so we came up with this concept. We've got support vehicles. So you, you're not required to ride everything. So you, you can look at this as a holiday. Mm-hmm. 
And then we've designed the stages, say, about 100K a day. So you're over and done with your riding by sort of lunchtime or 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. which uh, leaves enough time to enjoy France, mm-hmm. Switzerland or, or Germany. Or even take your partner along and do something together in the afternoon. Or then when we talk about some triathletes, uh, maybe fit in some training because there's there's amazing opportunities for running and we can find some swimming pools and lakes. So there, there, there's a whole range of opportunities in that tour, which uh, yeah we want to, to point towards too. So that's uh, sort of the, the basic rundown of uh, what we're planning. Obviously, 2014... Um, the Tour de France for, for that year is not published yet, mm-hmm. but the tour is uh, timed, so we will be in Paris to watch the, 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 the finish of the Tour de France on the Champs-Élysées. Cool. So that's another sort of little twist. So we're not quite actually following the actual tour, but we will be there for the, uh, for the, the final um, part of the Tour de France in 2014. Cool. So this camp is, yeah, for listeners, it is a 2014 camp, and the reason for that is you need quite a bit of lead-in for this camp to get yourself sorted out. So tell us um, the length of the camp, and it, and it can be broken into to two, yep. to two, two parts if required. It is uh, six weeks. Well, so nice. So we take exactly the, double the time. Um, the, the planned dates are from the uh, 16th to the 29th of July 2014. Um, you can break it into two parts, into the first half and the second half. So the first half you will cover, um, if I mean, it, it's it, the the, uh, the tour starts um, in Pontiers and obviously finishes in Paris, but you will be taking in the uh, Brit- Brittany and Dordogne and the Pyrenees, and then the second part sort of is the Alps, Switzerland, and back to Fran- uh, back to uh, Paris. But I mean, if if people don't, if people want to ride the entire thing, they even got the option to do this in 2014 plus 2015. So do the first three weeks in 2014 and the second three weeks. Oh, in okay, cool. So because we, we we're going to run this over um, over several years, because we know that people need that lead-in time to plan something. Yeah, that long and, and and complicated for quite some time. Mm. So that that is our general idea for for that tour. What in terms of the level of athletes is it going to be open for? Obviously, you've got to be reasonable to be able to do this sort of volume. But but in terms yeah. of speed, is there any um, requirements you guys have r- around that? No, we we won't have any requirements around speed. Um, the way we've organised the the support for the tour is we've got a lead vehicle, we've got a um, a vehicle following so for anyone starting to struggle we we can provide pickups um, if we've got horrible days that you do not want to ride at say it's cold or raining you can opt for a seat in the car as well mm-hmm. so I mean obviously we, we're talking about six weeks of cycling or three weeks of cycling you need to be uh, reasonably fit um, to enjoy that but apart from that, there's there's no absolute speed requirement that that we um, ask for. So that, that that is what our support guides are there for. So that there will be people in support vehicles as well as um, some ride guides um, like myself. Um, there you to, go. Hang on to Axel's wheel for a few hours every yeah. day, and you'll be looking for a good time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, tell, tell us a bit about Global Adventure Guide because um, yeah, you guys have do operations all over the world um, and you've fantastic levels of support. So just give us a, bit, a quick brief summary about um, Global Adventure Guide. Obviously this, this camp, but you've also got other camps um, around the world as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are, we are Christchurch, New Zealand-based company with uh, German heritage, which gives us easy access into, say, Europe. But uh, then mainly we, we take um, yeah, people from the wider Christchurch area in New Zealand uh, and also people from all over the world um, into interesting riding destinations um, all over the world. And we use mountain bikes and road bikes alike. And um, most all of our tours, I have to say, are, are personally researched by by Ralph Junghans, which is the owner of the company. And he, what he does, he he usually he goes there the year before, or two years before, and and rides the the routes and the and checks out the itineraries, um, creates links with with local support operators, and um, creates an experience which, which is quite personal and we, we are very proud um, about our support structures so we, we always make sure that we select quite uh, sort of unique hotels we make sure that we've got vehicles there that are able to provide um, the, 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 re, the required level of support and we, we go to some adventurous destinations so France in that respect from the from the support level is, is quite easy uh, just recently we've been to Jordan or we run tours uh, across Tanzania um, across the Andes on mountain bikes, uh, road bikes. We, we've been to South America, um, well, all, all over. I mean, the, those those mountain passes in the Alps and the Pyrenees are sort of almost like a regular for us, and we have got crews that are, are based in Europe and um, have got trailers there for 2014. And so, so, so uh, we, we usually specialize in that quite um all, all the hassle stuff that that surrounds the riding obviously still the riding you have to do yourself <laughs> no motorized but bikes allowed yeah <laughs> uh, we don't offer you electro bikes on those on those trips, <laughs> and if people want to find out more about obviously this tour we'll, we'll put a link up on legends of triathlon.com but give us the, the website where people can go to find out more about this tour and any other tours that you do as well yeah, our website is uh, www um, global adventure guide in in one word. So it's it's the the full company name. You can also search for that on on Google or whatever search engine you're using, and um, th- then you find our website and and uh, everything's listed. Or if if you want, you 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 Skype us or you write us an email or call us. Um, you've got all the contacts on the website, and uh, yeah, we, we should be we should be there for people in the northern hemisphere. It's quite convenient. You can call us after work, and it's uh, in the middle of our day. Or for a lot of American listeners, maybe um, just check the times in New Zealand. And quite often, you find it's it might be easy for you to call us when it's um, a convenient time for you after work, and, and we're still here at work. So that's uh, that's a bonus for that and for those people as well. Awesome! It's a uh, yeah, it'd be, a, it'd be an event of a lifetime, wouldn't it? Be? It'll be an amazing, yeah. amazing experience. So, if you want to check it out, um, we'll have links on on the website um, and globaladventureguide.com and yep. check it out. So, yeah. thanks very much for your time, Axel. Thanks, guys. And now we're back with Mike. So uh, here it is. What?
Oh, you, like, like, you know, like you're, you're obviously in the early stages of, the, you know, this whole evolution of what's happening in there. But tell us some of the stories that you look back on fondly, maybe about some of the pros, you know, like when you think back of, of that time, what are some of the kind of the highlights in your mind that you have around some of the experiences that you've had? Well, I think, you know, traveling around the country with the with the U.S. triathlon series um, was was pretty was a pretty amazing experience. I started out with the series, just covering it as a journalist um, and seeing um uh, you know the athletes come up through the ranks. Uh, I remember very well. Um, so that so that so traveling around the around the the country and getting to know these people as very good friends. Uh, I look back now. I go to a race and I see people who who I realize are some of the best friends I ever made in my life. Mm-hmm. I maybe haven't seen them in twenty years, but guys like Jimmy Riccatello and Scott Tinley, with whom I've I've stayed very close. Um, um, some of the I haven't seen Kirsten Hansen in a long time, but some of these people we saw every week. We watched them under extreme conditions. Um, I wrote about them. Um, I interviewed them at length, and that that sense of camaraderie among the people in the sport who were making it grow um, was. I don't think will ever leave me, and I don't. I didn't realize at the time how important it was to me until I left the sport and then began sort of coming back with my current business, sort of getting reengaged with some of those people. Um, that was that 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 to me is something that I will hold dear uh, forever. When I hear Scott Molina saying nice things about me, uh, I, I have to say that it just you know it's just it's it's really it's a really good feeling. Um, so that whole sense of of camaraderie was wonderful. And then, uh, you know, I asked earlier about highlights. When you look back and you start going through the list of things, I remember Mark Allen's first big race in, at the Horny Toad, this really obscure race in San Diego called the Horny Toad Triathlon. Horny Toad. <laughs> yeah, the Horny Toad Triathlon was a half, a half Ironman distance, and, and Mark Allen had nothing. He had not, I, I, it wasn't his first race, but it was pretty close to it. He'd never shown anything other than, in fact, some talent. And he beat the crap out of Moline and Tinley. And and uh, and and suddenly he was you know he was Mark Allen there he was and um, uh, so to watch these people emerge uh, from nothing um, and uh, and move on uh, through you know really kind of greatness uh, to watch a guy like Scott Tinley who was such a great triathlon now become triathlete now become a you know a PhD in literature. Um, I'm I'm proud of these guys. I'm glad to have known all these folks. I mean that's. I, that's really, to me, the highlight. It's more of a, um, instead of the individual things, it's more of a composite feeling, you know? So as a, as a um, reporter, you know, Bevan and I, when we started these podcasts, we just sort of make it up as we go along and, and sort of learn <laughs> yeah. as, as we go. What, um, for you, you know, w- w- when you're writing about a particular athlete or a particular race, and you, did you have any bad experiences where you maybe wrote some negative things about, about athletes and did they ever sort of pull you up about that? Or mm, how, that, how did you sort that of relationship, yeah. How did you try to get that relationship when they were friends? But at the end of the day, if someone has a crap race, do you sort of pander around it, around it or did you sort of go in there and say, you know, Molina got smashed out at a crap race, he looked terrible? Or how did you sort of approach when people did, weren't going so well? Well, you know, it was interesting. I never, ever ever once had a problem um, with the athletes. Um, I never had an athlete complain about an article. I tried to write candidly. I, I, I still um, think of myself as a journalist, even though I'm not working in the field right now. Um, but I'm very, um, I think that the whole idea of journalism and, and ethics and journalism and writing what's true is really important. Um, the athletes, I never got pushed back from. Um, what was interesting is I did 
um, piss a lot of people off in this sport <laughs> in writing about the sport and the politics. And uh, uh, the, that, that I approached um, head on. And I made the difficult phone calls. And I have people to this day, uh, not, not many. I, I, there, there are one or two that probably still wouldn't speak to me if they saw me on the street um, because they felt that I had uh, transcended the boundaries of what the, trioth- you know, the sport could handle. I, I had a, a publication in the late uh, 1980s called The Plant Report. And it was what would have been now a blog. Yep. And it was about uh, 5,000, 6,000 words every month. <clears throat> and I covered everything. I covered the business of sport. Um, in fact, I remember being on the phone with Phil Breyers in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. um, the race was, the Ironman New Zealand was taking place on Sunday, and it was still Saturday in the U.S., and I was covering the race live. It was great. Um, I, had, I had subscribers in about 20 countries. And uh, we sent this thing out by hand. We printed all the hard copies and actually put it in an envelope and sent it out with a stamp on it uh, in those days. And, um, and I wrote some tough stories. I wrote some stories about um, um, uh, people that were doing things that were kind of nefarious in the sport and cutting corners and, and not paying money. And, and um, uh, that, was, that earned me some um, – well, I'll, t- I'll tell you. There, I, won't, I won't name names, but when uh, – when one of the triathlon publications was sold many years ago, the guy called me, who's the publisher, and asked me to come to Colorado to edit the publication. He wanted, it, he wanted me to be the, the senior editor, the managing editor. Um, and I was actually interested in it. And I started looking at homes in Colorado, <laughs> actually. Yep. And uh, he called me back about a week later. And he said, uh, I can't hire you. He said, because the contract stipulates that... <laughs> Specifically, you cannot edit this publication. Wow. And that was because of a, of I, I had written a, a couple of articles in Triathlon Magazine, Triathlete Magazine at the time, about how the Federation was in bed with another organization and um, to the detriment of a lot of people. And it was a two-part series, and it was very hard-edged investigative journalism. Um, and I uncovered a lot of bad stuff that really shouldn't have been going on. It probably was illegal. Um, and uh, there were folks that never forgave me for that. So I think that um, I was able to take a principled stance, um, took some hits for it, but I'm very proud of it, and I wouldn't do it any other way. But as far as the athletes go, never heard a peep. I think, I think everybody respected the fact that I was doing the best I could. Do you think so. the sport lacks that, that depth of journalism now? Well, you know, look at what happened to Matt Fitzgerald with his book on mm. Iron War. Mm. Um, uh, I have great amount of respect for Dave and, and for Mark, uh, but that was a book that was um, the attempted to cover in a certain way. Um, and uh, Matt did his homework. I know he he talked to me for, at length, and I know he talked to a lot of people. Um, and there was an expectation by some that uh, that he would compensate the people he was writing about um, in return for their participation, which, from a journalistic standpoint, is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't ask that. You would, mm-hmm. you, you would immediately discount the book as a, as a, as a valid piece of journalism. So um, I, think, I think there are attempts to do that. Um, I think a lot of people would say it's unnecessary. Uh, but when you look at what's happened in other sports and cycling, with the drugs and you know, a lot of other things, I think that, I think that any sport could use um, good, hard-hitting journalism to keep itself honest and to keep itself from sliding you know, into... 
you know, uh, I mean, look what happened just in the U.S. On, in Penn State just recently. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying anything like that. Anything like that is happening in Trump, and believe me, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't for a minute say that. But I am saying that I think the media in any sports arena is a good thing to have, and I would encourage uh, the journalists to be, uh, you know, hard-hitting. And, and when they see something that, that, um, uh, that isn't right, I think they should write about it regardless of the consequences. And I think there's some of that. I think Matt is very good proof that uh, somebody's willing to, to step up and write something that's controversial. Um, you know, um, I, I didn't fact-check this book, so I don't know. I can't vouch for all of its accuracy. But I think it was a courageous thing to do. What about, you know, a big part of what you did was photography, and, and I don't know the first thing about photography. But you push what, a button. Push a button, yeah. point and shoot. <laughs> but what, what, what is it that makes a, a good, you know, sets a, 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 an average photographer apart from a, from a very good photographer? And, and it encapsulates what our sports is about too. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, you have to be, uh, this is going to sound a little bit silly, but I think you have to be a big fan of, of, of the sport that you're covering. I, I think you have to really, really work to understand and appreciate the little things. When I talked earlier about not being, about being pragmatic and, you know, trying to bring, you know, more people into the sport, when, as a photographer, you need to, you need to absolutely be a fanatic and you need to know what the, what, what's in the eyes and you need to know what the legs are doing. Um, I, uh, I have a reverence for performance. I used to, I was a, for a long time, I was a, a coach, a springboard diving coach. And I really gained an appreciation and an understanding of how the body works. And when I'm out shooting a race, I, um, the, 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 uh, the concept of, of motion and what people are doing, um, what they're doing with little parts of that. I remember being in the ABC camera van back in 1982, shooting right into Julie Leach's face and watching what she was doing with her eyes and how she was agonizing and trying to talk herself into going a little bit further because really she was about to stop. You know, that's something that you try to bring to the audience through a camera lens. It's not easy to do, and what you need to be is totally focused. It's funny, when I had kids um, in my family, my wife took over as a photographer because I couldn't photograph my kids because I couldn't watch my kids if I was photographing because I was fo focusing on, <laughs> on, on taking pictures but not watching my kids. And I think um, many times I've realized that I really didn't see what was going on in a race at all because I was focusing on what was going on, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, there's, I think like anything else, uh, writing racing, doing whatever you do, when you have a great passion, and I had a great passion for taking pictures of people in action, um, that first of all comes through, uh, and second of all, it's really fulfilling, you know, when, that, when, that, when those little, those few really great shots come up, boy, it's a great feeling. Mm -hmm. It's a creative convantage, isn't it? Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. I mean, I've got a couple that I, that I took one in Mar of Mark in, in Nice where he had, um, in Nice, France, in 1982, um, we, we had gotten uh, stuck in the mountains and were racing back to the finish line. And I thought we'd missed the finish. And, and we were on the, uh, the, the Promenade d'Anglaise uh, in Nice, uh, across from the Hotel Negresco. And, and uh, they, were, they were running along the boardwalk. And I saw this big crowd of people. And I went, oh, my God, maybe we didn't miss the, miss the finish after all. And I hopped out of the car, grabbed my couple of cameras. <clears throat> and Mark was... Um, Mark fell at that moment, and I grabbed a couple of pictures of him on the ground. He didn't fall straight out. He just stumbled backwards, and his legs were nothing there. And then he stood up, and he tried to run again. And I was, by that time, standing in front of him and walking backwards as Mark was, was coming toward me. And Frank Shorter was there cheering him on, and the crowd was all around him. And, and his, uh, the, the shot I got of him, the one shot 
that was perfect that I got of him with his eyes said everything there was to know about Mark Allen. He was not there, but his <laughs> body was going. This was a guy who, would, who could not be stopped, um, it, you know, uh, short of something really drastic. And um, it was one of the best shots I've ever taken. And, and it was just that moment of, uh, well, my passion um, and mostly his courage um, and then pure luck, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And I'll be darned, that shot was in, was in focus. That one, <laughs> that one shot was, was there. So it's a thrill. Yeah, it's a big thrill. Did he go on to win that race or did he, where did he finish? Didn't he win this was about um, – so this was, this was great. Uh, he was fairly close to the finish line at that time. He was about a mile from the finish line. And, and finished it and won and ended up downstairs in the medical tent. I got a couple of shots of him on the couch, <clears throat> on the cot, you know, in the medical cot. He was out. I mean, he, he, was, he was in serious trouble. And Dave Scott was coming behind him. And what had happened is on the run, they just didn't have enough water. Again, 1982, early days of the sport, um, people didn't understand. And, um, and I remember that same, that same day, I think uh, Tinley was third, and I was there at the finish line. And he looked at me, he said, somebody's going to die out there one of these days. Somebody's just going to die. And then he came up to me a few minutes later. He said, i got to ride this off. He was so angry at what had happened at the race, what had happened to Mark and Dave. He was just hearing about it that uh, he said, i got, I got to go ride this off. Come on, take a ride with me. And after that race, dehydrated as he was, we rode 35 miles up the hills into you know, through, uh, <laughs> through Monaco and up to the Italian border and then back again. It was pretty crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, a big day for me just because there was so much happened. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he marked one that day. It was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty amazing. You must have had a pretty interesting insight into the world of, of a pro athlete and, and to watch people grow and develop into themselves over the years, you know, because it sounds like you're pretty much on the pulse, you know, with these athletes all the time. So what was it like watching, you know, someone like a, a Mark Allen or a Dave Scott or a Tinley or, or anybody really as they came into the sport and to see what they turned into as, as people as they evolved further and further in the time in the sport? It was it was fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I've never really written about this. Um, um, I think Matt Fitzgerald tried to do it in his book, um, but it was amazing. Uh, I you know with the big four in those days, uh, you know Alan uh, Scott, um, Dave Scott, and and Scott Molina. Um, each of them had a distinctly different personality that helped them do what they did, um, and and helped them do um, what they did better than anything. Uh, Tinley, I always remember, was the guy who was thinking all the time and probably thinking too much for his own good. He was the only guy that could talk himself out of winning a race. Um, and I would say that he was sitting right here, you know, because as tough a competitor as he was, what Scott really loved was the journey, not so much the race. And yeah. he would get to the point in the middle of a race and go, what the hell am I doing out here? This is not fun. And for him, the fun part of it was working his tail off in training, working as hard as he could and getting to the starting line. And the rest of it was... Although he was a fierce, fierce competitor, there were those little things in him that, that I think probably prevented him from being even better than he was. And he was magnificent. With Dave Scott, uh, you know, we got on the course, he'd bite your leg off if you got in front of him. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a fierce guy. And uh, Molina, kind of the same, but, 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 but almost a little cocky about it. Um, kind of a <laughs> wonderful... Uh, you know, I got a shot of Molina with this little Mona Lisa that is so typically Scott. There's always something going on that's sort of like, he's really not taking it all that seriously, but I'm still going to kick your butt. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a mischievous about a mischievousness about the way he raced. That was wonderful. And then Alan was um, somewhere else. I mean, 
you know, Alan was the only guy I knew that went out in the middle of the highway at, you know, at night before the race and prayed to the gods and believed it. And, and who knows if he was right. It sure worked out for him. You know, he was a, uh, he was a, he was a thinker. With Mark Helen, you know, like the, 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 the Iron War, you know, the gods and all the rest of it, yeah. um, was, he, was that a shift in that moment or was he already in that place for 10 years before that? Or like, you know, like obviously he found what he found eventually, but was, you know, like was there a shift in him around that? Um, I, I think that Mark took a long time understanding um, the, the, both, both his talent and the limits to his talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mark just raced. He was so good, and, and he raced so hard. And when he was on, he was on. And when he was a little off, he could take himself over the edge. I'm not sure that, um, that until later in his career that Mark had a sense standing at the finish line, at the starting line, what it took to get to the finish line. You know, the overall race. Some people have a natural instinct. It's hot. I need to go slower here, speed up there. I think Mark kind of took his – he was so – uh, not vicious, but but he was so dedicated to the racing part of things that that he would forget, and he would ride away from people, and then suddenly realize that that really hadn't been a very good idea. And I took him, I took, I think it took him a long time to understand how to race. And I think it was significant that when he finally beat Dave, he beat Dave by on, on a good when they were both having good days. He he beat Dave by basically running Dave Scott's race. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I recall that marathon well, and I was in the tower. I was, I was just dying because I couldn't see the race because I was announcing that year. Um, but I had so many people tell me, and my wife, Kathleen, was on the course giving me splits, and I was looking at my splits going, you've got to be kidding me. They can't be running this fast. And, and Mark ran the whole race um, you know, inside of Dave so that he would get to the aid station first, and Dave would have to slow down and go behind him and grab the water and, and waste all that energy. And Mark knew what he was doing. You can't tell me to this day that he didn't know exactly what he was doing. And he broke Dave in the very spot that Dave broke everybody else. Hmm. 99 mile mark, base of a little hill going up and you head back into town. That was the spot that Mark broke Dave. He ran Dave's race, and he ran it better than Dave did. And I just think that he was a, uh, not only a student of his own body and mind, but it took him a while to sort of tone it down and, and dial it back and understand how he raced. Uh, I just, I think that's, you know, um, he, was, he was scary good from the beginning. Um, he just needed to understand how, it's almost like a great racehorse, you know, you just got to learn how to run him. Yeah. And Mark learned how to run himself over the years, you know. So, so you you had a big involvement there, you know, through through the eighties by the sound of it. But I know I've read that you went off and sort of did uh, worked in the in the restaurant industry for for a while. Yeah. Did you c- completely sort of take yourself out of the sport, or were you just you know was it just your career and you still followed triathlon uh, outside of uh, you know your nine to five? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, uh, I was I was mostly a journalist, and when the when we had kids. Um, when our first, when Kathy and my first baby came, um, riding in multi-sport was not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a lot of money there. And, um, and I was branching out and writing about other things and writing for bigger magazines. But it was still tough. You know, you'd, you'd establish a relationship with an editor and then the editor would move to another magazine and then the new guy would come in and have his own people. And um, she, you know, we basically just had this heart-to-heart talk one day and said, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to move to some small little cabin in the woods and you're going to keep riding? Or are we going to raise a family in Southern California? And um, 
So the more than anything, by far more than anything, it was a financial decision. It was a decision to get out of journalism and um, <coughs> excuse me, get out of journalism and um, and work. And I'm the type of guy that um, I, I mean, you know. I'm an endurance athlete. I throw myself hard into everything I do. Mm-hmm. And I threw myself hard into, um, into the restaurant business and into several businesses after that. And now I've got my own business and um, you know, reconnecting a little bit. But um, uh, yeah, it was just, just one of those things. You know, It wasn't that I walked away because I was upset with it or anything else. I think I had done pretty much everything that I could do. I think I got to the point where you know, I'd, I'd been to the top um, – you know, I'd done all the television and wrote the books and done all that stuff. And I looked around and I went, wow, there's not a whole lot here. Mm. And when was it, roughly? Oh, it was, you know, right around uh, 1990, right, right around, you know, the end of the 80s is that at that whole first generation of triathlon was mm. ending. And then, you know, the Europeans were starting to come in and kick butt at the Ironman. And, yeah. and the, you know, the Aussies were, uh, <laughs> you guys were, I mean, you know, the Aussies were just killing everybody. I remember I just was rereading an article I wrote about the world championships in, in Disney World and, you know, the, the Aussie well, men just crushed yeah, everybody. Yeah. That was the, you know, that, that now was changing. And I, I, don't, I think it was changing for the better. It was great to see the sport go international. But suddenly the guys I knew that were kind of stepping back and, and the new guys were coming in. And I, I, guess, I guess maybe I just felt it was time to sort of, I did my part and uh, now let's move on, you know. We, oh, we often talk about, you know, to the pros, you know, you know what's it like when you leave, you know, and, 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 you know, this was your kind of focus on life. And so was there a, a sense of regret or did, was there kind of a, you, you know, as you kind of moved into a different world and I'm sure you were focused on what you're doing, was there a sense of loss in life? Um, I don't know that there was an, an active sense of life, a loss, except when I went back to it. Um, uh, okay. And then I realized how much I'd lost. I went back once, I think it was 1990, maybe 1991, where we did a live, I did, um, we did live blogging from the, from the Ironman uh, on the race um, for a triathlon, inside triathlon. And um, uh, that was a great experience. I hadn't been back to the Ironman in, in several years. Um, and now I get that same thing. When I, when I go to a race and I see all these old friends of mine, uh, yeah, there, there is a palpable sense of loss, but not when I'm working, you know, it's like just when you go back, you go, God, mm-hmm. these, these were, you know, these my, as I said before, these are my best friends mm-hmm. uh, ever. So, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, those are good, I mean, those are good days. You know, we, looking back, you have, um, a lot of us have the distinct feeling that we actually help make a sport and that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know. So when so. You, you look back now, you know it's, it's 2012, and it's sort of been around about 20, just over 20 years since you sort of moved in direction. I mean, are you happy with the, the direction the sport's gone? Do you like what you see? Um, what what would you rather see happening? No, I think it's terrific to tell you the truth. I I, I do. I mean, uh, you, you you know the Olympic Games, and I think they solved the whole drafting issue. Great. I think the the ITU did a terrific job of that. I know some people are you know probably that's still a controversy, but there was such a huge deal in my day, and you know drafting ruined so many races. I I I'm, I think they've done a nice job in sort of formatting it correctly. I mean, I think uh, uh, I, I I frankly love where it is. Um, I think the one thing. Uh, the one thing I don't like is um, I see, um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think there's a sense of history. I don't think people feel connected or, or really care about where it all started. Mm-hmm. And that may be changing now. We're changing and, uh, right here yeah, today, Mike. It's, it's, yeah. it's great. I'm glad. <laughs> so I'm so glad you are. And, and, um, 
And then I read some of these newsletters and blogs that I get, and, and there's a um, uh, there's a there's a very um, it's still a very self-centered sport. It's mm-hmm. still all about me. It's all about my equipment. It's all about this. It's all about that. It's not really about uh, how do I say this? It's not it's it's not about the sport. It's not about what happens. It's not an appreciation for everybody out there. I mean, you know, somebody's doing an Ironman race in 15 hours. You got to be kidding me. That that's hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't know that people appreciate um, how difficult, really, in context of of everything, how difficult this sport is, and how uh, gritty it is, and 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 really how how close the connection is to the early days. Uh, it's it's so I think sometimes I see people who are, you know, they're driving around with a seventy point three you know sticker on the back of their car and and. Um, and they've done all the right things, and they got all the right equipment, and they're they're getting to the finish line. Good for them. They don't really have a sense of what the sport is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. You know, and that's the that's the only thing. The rest of it, I just think it's fantastic, and I just can't believe these races are selling out like in 15 minutes. I mean, who'd have thought, right? Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I remember talking to guys that thought they'd die if they did an Ironman. You know, they thought <laughs> literally could kill them. I remember those days, but and now it's like everybody, and you know. Everybody and his uncle. It's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. Well, I like it. Well, yeah. you know, like if you if you say that, you know, and in its nature, our sport does draw, um, you know, the single-minded kind of a little bit selfish. You know, the sport does kind of put you in that place. Uh, so, if you know, if that's the problem of now, what would you think would be solutions that would shift that energy towards it? Maybe helping people understand that better. Well, you know, I think. Um, uh, I, I, I get a sense that people have forgotten that, that I know this is going to sound stupid with everybody doing the Ironman races, the 70.3s and the full Ironman races. It sounds a little bit stupid, but I get a sense that a lot of folks don't understand how hard this, supports, this, this sport is supposed to be. You know, not everything is going to be the way you want it on it on a given day. Um, mm. You know, the weather is going to be terrible. Um, you're going to have a terrible day. You're going to get down to the basics of what it always used to be, which is getting to the start, from the start to the finish line, and getting there any way you can, including crawling. You know, and I've I've gotten a sense sometimes that people feel it needs to be a little bit too perfect. Mm. Uh, you know, there's everything sort of accommodates you getting to the finish line. And I'm not going to say that I, I don't think people should wear wetsuits because I think they've saved a lot of lives and it's a great thing. But when I go to some of these small triathlons here, out here on the West Coast and you see guys going to water without wetsuits, I kind of silently kind of go, yeah, way to go. Because we didn't have wetsuits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the water was 57 degrees and you just went out and swam. And there was only one reason for that. It's because you were doing a triathlon and nobody expected to be anything but ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And if there wasn't traffic control, you made your way around it. Mm. All of those are good things. We need to have great traffic control and great races and wetsuits and all the safety that we do now. I think it's really good. But I think there needs to be uh, a little – I sense that there's not a pride in – in not a pride in it as if, if all those things were gone. If suddenly you didn't have a helmet and you had a bike off the garage of wall and you only had you know, like old Ked sneakers, you could still get through it. You know? Mm. And I – Probably sounding like a really old guy when I just say that. So, no, no, that touches a note, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Your involvement these days, um, are you just an observer or are you still involved? I know you've got your, um, your company that does sort of the, the promotional tents and materials and stuff like that, but tell us about yep. what you do these days. 
Well, um, th- that keeps me involved. You know, we, we are working with more and more multi-sport events and marathons. Um, you know, we did the tents and the banners and the flags and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, the fact that I've got the production experience and the event experience really helps uh, me in that business. But I'm still doing a little, um, a little announcing. Um, a few years ago, Bill Leach, who was one of the pioneers of the sport, um, uh, his wife, Julie, won the Ironman in 82 in October. Uh, Olympic kayaker, great guy, good friend. Um, a former triathlete uh, asked me to announce uh, his two triathlons here in Southern California. Um, uh, Maca actually did did the race the first year, and um, and I was happy to do it. And so now I'm sort of announcing here and there, mm-hmm. just for fun. And uh, it I do get just as big a thrill now as I ever did. I mean, I I really did enjoy the announcing. I I felt I was really good at it. I put a lot of passion into it. I was a I was a great fan of everybody who crossed the finish line. You know, I was a, I was a good triathlon fan. So, um, uh, that's so we're we're increasingly involved, and and uh, you know, I've kept up a close association with Scott Tinley. We've got a couple of projects we're doing, and so um, yeah, it's been fun. And I and I am still involved, although peripherally. Just one, you know, have you, over the years when you weren't kind of necessarily actively involved in the sport, did you still keep an eye on the sport? Um, not that much. You know, it was, it was, uh, yeah, you kind of had to watch it pretty closely uh, because the, the names are changing so quickly. Gosh, you know, I used to, my goodness, I not only knew the names, I used to know the hometowns and the birthdays, yeah. you know, the, yep. the, the girlfriend's names. It was stupid. <laughs> um, so I think once that stopped, it was, it was too hard to keep track. So I think I kept a general track. I mean, I understood what IT was doing. It was cool to see the Olympic, you know, the sport in the Olympic Games. But um, uh, now I feel a little bit less competent when I go out to a race to announce because I haven't really kept up. So no, not not as much as uh, I won't say as I should because there's no should there. But um, I would probably like to be a little bit more knowledgeable about who's racing how. I think it would be fun to get out to the races and watch them the way I used to, which is from the press truck where, you know, you got to see them from three feet away, which is pretty neat, mm. you know. So. What in regards to, like, the pros, you know, like if you, if you look at a pro nowadays, what, what, how do you think the pro athlete has evolved from, you know, from, you know, your period from pretty much 80 to 90? You know, if you look at what the pros are like nowadays, do you think they've evolved in what ways have they evolved, or you know, what what would be the differences that you see in a pro nowadays? Oh. I I think like I think like any sport, I don't think triathlon is any different. I think oh, what's happened is incredible. The evolution of the individual athlete as better trained, um, better equipped, uh, faster, uh, stronger. Uh, you know, it, it, some of it is mindset. I, I've been an athlete long enough to realize that. You know, when you consider something fast and then suddenly you're over here and you're no longer fast, now your whole mindset changes. And so you go faster because now you're comparing yourself to a different standard. But I think even considering that, when I go back and look at the times and look at the mentality of the way people raced, again, you talk about milestones. Look what Mark and Dave did at Iron War when they suddenly ran the 245 marathon that Dave Scott had been saying was possible all along. Well, now that's that's kind of what you got to do to stay there. I'm not saying it's still not a very fast race, but I think what's happened in triathlon is the same thing that's happened in baseball and hockey and all this stuff. People have gotten bigger and faster and stronger and better and more knowledgeable. And I think it's fantastic. I, I uh, um, man, I mean, I, I watch these people race now and it's just really hard to believe with how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's great to watch. I mean, that, that's one thing that would make me want to get back and start covering again because I'd like to see this new level of performance up close, you know? Awesome. Well, Mike, you said earlier that um, one thing that's lacking in the sport is, is the history, and, and I love getting guys like yourself on here to 
to sort of tell us what it was like in those early days? Because when I do my research, it's there's, there's not a lot out there in terms of no, what there's was really going not. on in the seventies no. and eighties. You know, the internet's full of, of hell of a lot of useful stuff from probably mid nineties on, but from the eighties and early nineties, it's it's pretty limited. So, thank you for um, helping bring us up to speed on on the things that you were involved with, and and really just looking at where the, the birthplace of the sport was in, in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really happy. Um, thanks, thanks for your interest and, and thanks for your time. Uh, you know, anything I can do, the, uh, I'm, I'm honored. Brilliant. Great. Thanks, thanks Mike. Thank- so uh, this was years ago. This is literally 10 years ago or over 10 years ago now that we interviewed Mike. And I remember at the end I said something around the idea is one thing is it's, it's a bummer about sport. And people have just listened to this, but that, that sense of adventure has gone a little bit from the sport. You know, because in the early days it was that, you know, it was literally, you know, bunch of guys just a bunch mm. of people were just trying to do some crazy crap and once you know now it's so kind of you know it's so structured it's so kind of there's systems and things that people follow that kind of sense of vision and, and let's be honest it's one thing you've always kept to isn't it you know like yeah you know you're doing your everything last week you did that crazy thing a few weeks ago up all the hills mm. of Christchurch you've you've always you know even when I was doing sport with you you do hey let's do this crazy thing I was like mm. oh yeah I'll do that um it's something that we don't want to lose in the sport you know being a, an amazing triathlete and being an amazing Ironman is a great thing, but we also want to use that base we build in our life to, mm. for more adventurous stuff as well. There's lots of choices these days. You can go and there's so many races around the world and you can create your own adventures there. Um, you've got all the different extreme triathlons. Um, and then, you know, we can diversify into gravel riding or, or, or as we even said, make your own adventures. So, you know, as we have heard uh, last week, hopefully I did ev- finished Everesting. But for me, it's like, that's really actually getting me out of my comfort zone because I'm not particularly fit at the moment and it's a challenge that I often don't get where it's, you know, if I go to an Ironman, I know I'm going to finish and, and I know I'll do okay uh, and hopefully go do really well. Whereas this time around, it's like, I'm not very fit. This is the longest exercise activity I've ever done in my life. Uh, this could uh, could go wrong and I might not be able to do it. But yeah, you guys create your own, create your own adventures and as Bevan said, try not to, Necessarily do the same, the same old thing every every year. Yeah, you're doing some some just stuff that pushes you in different ways. But yeah, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. I I haven't listened to this as we've sent it out to you guys, but I just recall being so impressed with him. Mm. You know, like just a really impressive man. So sadly, he's gone from our our world, but we're really glad we got that interview of him because. You know, again, it's a pretty important legacy of our sport. So, John, uh, let's say thank you to our patrons. We have got Christine uh, steaming up the room, Ahmed, <laughs> <laughs> William, the treasure chest, Lockwood, and Craig, the rock, Nicholson. Okay, if you want to become a patron, go to me. Uh, support the boys and what we do. Basically, think of an old magazine. We're like a magazine. If you spent five, ten bucks on a magazine back in the day, just give it to us now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're saying. Uh, if to come Patreon, go to www.imtalk.me. If you want some coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. Also, my podcast, bevanjamesisles.com. Cool content. You can send it to imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Any other predictions for the year? Uh, okay, well, no, who's going to win? Kona and wherever else it's going to be. Uh, Kona is going to be Daniela Reef, and where the men's race, wherever that might be, it's going to be Jan Fredino. Okay, my my prediction is men's will be uh, Blumenfeld's not going to be there, is he? Well, they're not saying they're going to be there, but you never know with them. They may be there, but they've I've said they're going to focus on short course. I'm going to say Eden because I don't reckon Eden's going to be that good in the short course. Well, he's not, and he's shown that, not being nasty. But no, he's, no, no. So I, th- I think what's going to happen is he's going to go, you know what? 
I can turn up and do Kona mm. and you know win this thing. I'm going to disagree with that, but... Uh, I know, but that's why it's a weird prediction. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm going to say, Barclay's going to lose to Charles Barclay. kind of hope she gets one. Yeah, come on, mate. <laughs> come on, you can't get second for the sixth time or fifth yeah, time. Yeah. So this is her year. But that's cool. You know, we've got lots of different contenders going into both races. It's not that... But she had a rough year last year, and to pull mm. off the second was bloody amazing. Mm. You know, like that was a stellar performance. Mm. Um, you know, cause, well, she had the bike crash, didn't she? Uh, no, uh, stress fracture. That's right, stress fracture. Mm. So, you know, to come back and pull off that second. So this, this 2023, you heard Lucy, it here first. Lucy's year. She's taking out Kona. Okay, John, let's wrap it up. Iron Russ. I mean, don't. Train hard. Train smart. Kia, Kia Kaha. Kaha.